It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I have got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the city of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is... The end of the world, as we know. No, this is the hour of doom. Absolutely, the hour of doom. What is that? Your radio voice? No. Where's the? Oh no no, this is my radio voice. (laughs) No, that doesn't that doesn't work either. Oh my goodness, (laughs) I think. Try it one more time. Hello, and this is my radio voice. (laughs) Hello, everybody. All right. Well, this is also the hour of bloom. That's right. Hey, friends and neighbors, (laughs) welcome to the doom and bloom. Survival Medicine Hour, a rambunctious round of revelry in a ridiculous world. Revelry. Well, that's actually, right. that's a good revelry, word yes. because we're in Boston. That's right. And no, we're in Boston. Ba- oh, I can't that's say it like right. that. That's right. That's right. And I parked the car. <laughs> Funny story. We left the um, Boston Fine Arts Museum. Yes. And we got back to the hotel. Which, oh my gosh, the traffic was so bad. Of course, it was 6.15, our fault for leaving the museum at that moment. Get back to the hotel, and I can't find the keys. And, of course, it's one of those automatic push-button cars, folks, Uh you know, where the key is not actually in an ignition anywhere. It's just sort of floating around. I didn't remember getting the key from the valet because there's, like, no parking around this museum, so I had to valet. I had no idea where to park, so... Um, we get back to the hotel, and I said, I can't find the key. We're going to give it to the hotel valet now. Right. And I have no key. You have no key. I have no key. We look around the car. We can't find it. <laughs> so we park it in a spot. We turn it off, and we say, okay, the only way we'll know if there's a key in this car is to turn it back on. Well, it turned back on. Right. So now we're Couldn't, tearing, can't find the, the key. tearing the car apart. Car turns on and off just fine. <laughs> just the key is somewhere in the car. <laughs> Turns out in this car, do you even know what kind it is? I don't even know what that is. Is it a Dodge? I think it's a yeah, Dodge I think it's something. Yeah, it's a Dodge something. Anyway, there is a tiny little opening just above the air conditioner on the dashboard. Just big enough. Maybe, for what is it, a, like an inch? Yeah, just enough an for, inch. A, for a key to fit. <laughs> and apparently the valet guy at the museum had thrown the key in there, which was deep and dark. And it's, of course, a black key, so you can't see it. And we were searching. Thankfully, the hotel valet put his hand in there and pulled the key out. Oh, my gosh. 
<gasps> we got very lucky there. We hey, got so lucky. <laughs> one little thing. Yes. We didn't say who we were. Oh. Who are well, you? I know who you are. Well, I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net. Yes, but do you know who I am? Uh, I'm going to let you tell people okay. who you are. I'm Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And also known as Nurse Amy. That's right. And she is the hostess with the mostest. And our mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Wait, my other purpose is also to have people who are making cars make the keys red and not black because they get lost <laughs> on the floor mats. They really should. And they under really the seat. That's they, a good idea. They get lost in those little cubby holes. There's no light in those cubby holes they have all over the the center console and on the dashboard yes and they just get lost so all keys should be bright red from now in fact they should be flashing bright red when you turn the car off they should flash for like 10 seconds don't you think that's a great idea i think that is an awesome they don't idea to make a noise but just if, at least if they would flash you could find them ah uh, but it has nothing to do with survival medicine and that's what this hour is yes, all but about it's a great idea and everyone needs to hear it or or you can get red duct tape and put around the keys. So at least they'll show up better. Note to self, carry red duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> Friends and neighbors, have it's you like, been injured in an accident? Will she, stop? <laughs> she won't stop. Help me. All right, go ahead. I Friends, forget and where neighbors, Friends and have neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a cantankerous climatologist? climatologist? Ah, yes. Climate I knew what you were going to say. That's right. Our attorney says, though, don't call him. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only, obviously. Yes. <laughs> I'm entertained. How about you? <laughs> and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. You know... Red duct tape just might save somebody one day when they lose their key. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. You know, sometimes I have a good idea and I just have to insert it. Dr. Bose and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't pay attention to us, especially when we're talking about red duct tape. But you might just be the highest medical resource left to your loved ones in a disaster. So show the world you got more sense than a ham sandwich and learn what to do for injuries and illnesses in times of trouble. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues in tough times and are designed, indeed, by a real doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare them for contents, qualities, and costs. I dare you. Or talk to anybody who's ever bought one, and you will agree our kits are the ones for you. That's true. Now, I was going to say, instead of uh -oh. a ham sandwich, you should have said uh, smarter than a lobster. A lobster, yes, because we're in Boston. Yes, you know that we <laughs> we travel all over the place, and today and now we're in Boston, but we are heading to Burlington, Vermont, Which where we're is going right, right, just south of Canada, right. And lucky us, we left ninety degree or eighty nine degree weather, and this weekend in Burlington, Vermont, it's going to be 
88 to 90 degrees <laughs> in almost Canada. So cannot, what the hey? <laughs> I know. I know. How did that happen? Luckily at night, it's going to be a little better than oh, it is yeah. down oh, where, much, where much we better. are in we, South Florida. What do we get, like a five degree difference maybe? Yeah. Three or four? Yeah, it's it's not very not much. much. Not much of a difference at I night. Think it drops but here below it, 78. But it cools off nicely down here. Oh, it's it really, does. really pleasant well, at night. There's a beautiful breeze. Yes. It's cool. Well, we're right off the water, but we're not, I'm not sure. I know we're off the river in Burlington, but I'm not sure how much of a breeze we're oh, going to get yeah, there. Oh, yeah, probably not. I will say something about Boston. People are really friendly. Really, really, really friendly. It's funny. We're not too far from New York, if you think about New York City, with compared to the rest of the country. It's like a friendly New York. It's people on the elevator, people on the streets. If someone is going into a door, they turn around and hold the door. I haven't had one person let go of a door. I had someone so far ahead of me, she held that door until we got there because she saw someone was walking behind her. But we were like 30 feet away. She stood there and kept that door open. That was when we were leaving the museum today. Right. Well, just everyone's so nice. Can we help you? How are you doing? I hope you have a great day. And they all genuinely seem to mean it. Oh, I just—it's been so awesome. Well, besides going to stuff in the city, you know, we went out to yes, Concord, we love history, folks. Boston, and uh, Concord, Massachusetts, and uh, that's the place where the North Bridge is, yep. the old North Bridge is, and yep, where the, the shots were fired. Right, right, exactly. From the militia and the. They were called the regulars. They didn't say the British were coming. Right, because they were... It was a misnomer. Right, because the colonists thought they were British, too. They were too. all the same, right. There they was said no the British were coming. They wouldn't know if they were the colonists like or, the, right. or the army, British they army. they considered themselves the same, so they they termed them the regulars. Right. They said they would. They said the regulars are coming. The regulars are coming. To let them know that... that Which is funny because, of course, in all of our history books, at, at least where I went to school... That's what they said. The British, oh, British have been, that, that was never said. So a little tidbit of history And also there. that Paul Revere got stopped. He didn't make it all the way to Concord. He made it to Lexington, and then on his way to Concord, he got stopped. Right, exactly. But he did manage to meet up with a young doctor named Samuel Prescott. Prescott. See, are you shocked I remember right, that? Right, <laughs> exactly. And there was another another man named William Dawes who also rode. Um, Dawes. No one hears right. about that. He right. took a different path from took, Boston. Right, exactly. Then Paul Revere did, and he actually made it to Lexington, didn't he? No, it was Samuel Prescott who made it to Lexington, uh, to Concord. The, then where did Dawes end up? Dawes ended up also in Lexington. Also ended up in Lexington? But, and got but stopped? Prescott made it to Concord. Concord. He's the one who made it to Concord. And the interesting thing about Dr. Samuel Prescott is that you never heard from him ever again. Yeah. So we don't know they said he kinda disappeared. what happened to right. him. He sort of disappeared. Right. He, you know, you don't know where he's buried or anything like that. He just sort of disappeared right in and out of history, but he was able to complete the ride that Paul Revere could not. Now, an interesting, uh, we've learned so much just being here, but the bridge has been rebuilt six times. They actually dismantled it. Yes, after the it old was North used. Bridge, yeah, right. the old North Bridge, and then uh, I guess later on they figured out, well, maybe we need to keep some of our history intact, and they rebuilt it and store, sort yes. of made it a, a, a point of yep. interest. A point of interest. <laughs> yes, they have that bit, that big Minuteman statue there that's very famous. Yes, uh, just a, a great part of the country to come visit and and just. Steep yourself we're in very lucky American those, history. Yeah, we're very lucky these people were rebels. That's right. And just weren't going to take it anymore. That's right. 
hey, you know, well, now you just learned maybe a little tidbit of history you didn't know, but I'll bet that you have a pearl in your oyster that you might want to share with us. You know, we learn as much from you guys as you do from us. So connect with us. It is so easy. And here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. Also, a couple of Facebook pages. We have Doom and Bloom and Dr. Spelled Out, Bones, and Nurse Amy Show. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And we do have another podcast about all of the crazy events going on in the world. And Today, yes, it's called American Survival <laughs> Radio. And uh, we are broadcast not only from Genesis Communications Network, GCNlive.com, but also from a number of radio stations throughout the country. KPJC in Salem, Oregon, uh, KRFE in Lubbock, Texas, KFAR in Fairfax, Alaska and a number of internet networks, KIMB, Talk 365, our good friends from Prepper Broadcasting Network, and so many others. So check them out. Now, hey, you know, we're going to be this weekend in Burlington, Vermont, and uh, that's going to be June 10th and 11th, I think. Yes. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, homestead medicine. We'll be doing a a lecture. We're going to have all of our kits there and supplies. So come by, check them out. And if if you happen to be in the area, please come by and just say hi. Please do. Yeah, because we love meeting And I'll people. tell you what, Mother Earth puts on a heck of a show. They really do. And the cool thing is it's not just survival supplies. It's all kinds of homesteading. Oh, yeah. They have people who talk about raising chickens. Goats, and chickens. They have like a 4-H type they ha- of They have display beekeeping. They always have beekeeping. Right, there was a booth across from us that was doing um, mushrooms. So they had these little starter logs for all different mushrooms. And boy, was their booth hopping. Um, I'm yeah, sure they're going to cool be at this one, too. Um, again, like I said, there's all kinds of beekeeping equipment. And there's people there to answer your questions. And I think that's the most important thing is it's a learning experience. You don't have to buy anything. You can go there and just sort of look around and maybe take a piece of paper and think about things you might want in the future. But if you're interested in gardening, my goodness, there's so many people selling seeds. There's also a lot of people doing natural medicine, uh, people who make salves and um, essential oils. So you can learn a lot about natural medicine. And it's just, it's, I think it's a really good family experience. Absolutely. You know, I want to go ahead and start talking about some something that I started with last time. And that was START. S-T-A-R-T, <laughs> which is the fifth S in successful triage for mass casualty events. Certainly in disasters, mass, ca- mass casualties are a possibility, and with active shooters and bombings and all sorts of crazy things happening these days, who knows when you might not be, when you might be the first person at the scene. So I wanted to talk, we ended talking about simple triage and rapid treatment, S-T-A-R-T. And I just want to pick up there and talk a little bit more about that before we go on to other topics. Now, the first round of triage is called primary triage, and that's got to be fast, maybe 30 seconds per patient if possible, and does not involve, you might be surprised to know, does not involve extensive treatment of injuries. It's focused on just identifying the level of need of each 
victim in the event. So evaluation and primary triage, that's quick evaluation of the respirations, how, how the person's breathing, how the person's circulation is, that's called perfusion, and their mental status. These are called respirations, perfusions, and mental status is called RPMs. And they're a very basic indication of the level of injury. Now, other than controlling massive bleeding and clearing airways so people can breathe, there's very little treatment performed at all. Controlling hemorrhage is best done with commercial tourniquets, certainly, like the soft tee, the cat, or the SWAT, things we've talked about before, but it's, it's a really sad sign of the time that I recommend carrying one of these if you have to go into an area where there are a lot of crowds and not much security. But, but sometimes you just have to deal with just direct pressure. It depends on just how prepared you are or how likely you're going to be at risk for this kind of thing. Now, we talked about the various triage levels last time, immediate priority, which was a red tag in which the victim needs immediate medical care, won't survive if not treated quickly, for example, a major hemorrhagic wound, top priority people that need, need care right away, delayed or yellow tag patients, the victim that needs significant medical care maybe within two or four hours, but can wait until you are de done dealing with people that need immediate care, for example, Let's say somebody who has an open fracture of the femur but not having a major hemorrhage, that person needs help but might be able to wait while you're stopping the bleeding in somebody who is having a major hemorrhage. Then, of course, there are people that are walking wounded or minimally wounded. These people are called green tags. They're generally stable and, and as I said, walking wounded. They may have broken fingers, may have superficial burns, uh, but these people actually might be able to help if they're not a significant, if they're not badly injured enough or not don't need don't need that much care and of course there are the black tag uh, victims and these people are either deceased or just not expected to live so in other words in a survival setting if you have somebody who has an open fracture of the cranium of the skull with brain damage or who's been shot six times in the chest that person is a black tag and you do not expect that person to live so you, of course I'm giving you color codes which you can use of course the commercial triage casualty cards you can use colored tape but you may not have these things if you have a pen or, or a sharpie you could just mark the victim's foreheads with the numbers one two three and four indicating the priority for urgent care number one being a red tag number two being a yellow tag and so on so this allows incoming personal personnel to understand the urgency of a person's situation and you have to remember that in a power down situation without modern medical care, a lot of people that are red tags, maybe even some yellow tags, are gonna really become black tags from a practical standpoint. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what to do. Let's say the event has occurred, and as you go from patient to patient, the important thing is to stay calm, identify who you are, that you're here to help, and you've gotta find out the RPMs. So the respirations is your patient breathing, if not, what you do is you tilt the head back, jaw, uh, thrust the jaw forward, and that will help open the airway. If you have them, you would insert an oral or nasal, nasal airway. Uh, by the way, in an, a mass casualty situation, the rule against moving the neck of a victim due to risk of cervical spine injury is for the time being suspended. So you can indeed do that in this specific situation. Now, if you have an open airway and there is no breathing, that victim is a black tag. The person is not breathing and has 
an open airway should be able to breathe. But if you have somebody who breathes once an airway is restored, once the airway is open, or is breathing more than 30 times a minute, that person is a red tag. Of course, if the person is breathing normally, then you move to the next step, which is perfusion. Perfusion is an evaluation of how normal the blood flow is. So you check for a pulse, a wrist or, wrist or a neck pulse. You press on a nail bed or a finger pad firmly uh, and then quickly remove it. And what happens is the color becomes white when you press on it and goes back to normal color. If that happens in less than two seconds, well, then circulation is good enough to be considered okay. And that, uh, that is referred to, that test on the nail bed is called the capillary refill time, the CRT. If you have trouble feeling a weak pulse or if it takes longer than two seconds for the nail bed color to return, that person is a red tag. Something's going on with that person's circulation. Now, of course, if a pulse is present and the CRT is normal, then you move on to mental status. So mental status. Uh, can the victim follow simple commands? Open your eyes. What's your name? If a person isn't breathing excessively fast, has normal perfusion, but is unconscious or disoriented, that person is tagged red. But if they can understand you and follow commands, you can tag them yellow if they can't get up or green if they can. Remember that as a consequence of the explosion, a lot of people may not be able to hear you well. So they may not be a red tag really, it's just they couldn't hear the command that you were giving. given. Now, all of this can be remembered very simply by just thinking 32 can do. 30 respirations or more, tag red. Greater than two seconds, uh, capillary refill time, nail bed test, that's a tag that's red. And can do, can, if they do not follow your commands, they are tagged red. So 32 can do, that is how you will follow that. Any doubt to the category, always tag the highest priority triage level. If you're not sure between yellow and red, tag red. Once you have identified their triage level, move immediately to the next person until you, unless you find you have major bleeding, you have to stop. If you have to stop major bleeding, if you have a, an airway that needs to be open, you stop and you do that. But otherwise, move on. Anyone uh, uh, RPM check that results in a red tag, tags the victim as red. So it doesn't have to be all three are bad. Any one of them is bad, you've got a problem. You elevate the legs if you suspect shock in a person, in most cases. Here's some, uh, now here's some hypothetical victims. Let's see what their triage category would be. Let's say I had a male that was in his 30s and he complains of pain in his left leg. You look down and is obviously it's not pointing the right direction, so obviously fractured. His respirations are 24. He has a good strong pulse. His capillary refill time is one second. It's not over two seconds and he has no excessive bleeding. So somebody like this, would be considered maybe a yellow tag, right? This person is not bleeding to death. This person obviously is going to need significant help, obviously can't get up because his leg is fractured. And so he would qualify as a yellow tag. Let's say you had a patient that was a female in, in her 50s and she's bleeding from her nose, her ear, and ears and her mouth. She tries to sit up, but she can't. Uh, her respirations are 20, her pulse is present. Uh, she does have a CRT that is less than two, it's one second, but she doesn't respond to your commands. She's not responding to your commands, something's going on where she is going to need some help. She may have some, a brain injury. It could easily be that she has a brain injury. She's bleeding from her nose, her ears, and her mouth. You know that a lot of uh, injuries to 
the traumatic brain injuries can certainly cause some of those symptoms. So that would be a red tag. Uh, in, uh, that's a red tag victim. Now, if you had a teenage girl, let's say bleeding heavily from her right thigh, respirations more than 30, pulse thready, uh, capillary refill time more than two seconds, follows commands, doesn't matter, just the first one going wrong, just the respirations going wrong more than 30, that equals a red tag. Now, let's say there's another teenage girl who has a laceration on her forehead, but she says she can't move her legs. Well, respiration's 20, pulse is strong, the CRT is less than two, two seconds, and is able to, says she can't move her legs. That means that she's able to communicate with you, but she's unable to move her legs. So obviously she must have some kind of spinal injury, but that spinal injury is something that doesn't have to be dealt with in the next hour or so if you need to have people that are bleeding dealt with then this person would be a yellow tag uh, now another one let's say uh, we found a male uh, in his 20s he had a head wound and he had respirations that were absent what you would do in this case is you tilt the head back position position the jaw forward airway is now open still not breathing this person is a black tag so this is somebody with an issue now, let's say the next person is a female in her 20s she's got burns on her neck and her face her respirations are 22 which is faster than normal but not over 30 she has a, a good pulse uh, a crt that's less than two two seconds and she asks to get up and walk and she can walk with a limp but she can walk she's a green tag so she's automatically one of the walking wounded and so these are some people that can be categorized and you can get a good idea of just how serious the, their situation is. So these are some of the ways that you can identify who needs help in what order. Now, this means doesn't mean that you're doing the best care for each of these people, but you're doing the best that you can for the group as a whole. You're doing the best care for the most people, but not the best individual care for each person and that's just what primary triage is all about now i want to talk a little bit about shock now the definition of the word shock is much different in the medical community than what the general public thinks about of when they hear the term usually people use the word to describe some intense emotional or psychological reaction uh, to some occurrence but in the medical community, the word shock refers to a certain imbalance between the oxygen needed in the body and the oxygen that's actually being supplied to the cells, in addition perhaps to a lack of uh, nutrients let's, or, or glucose, per, for example, uh, being delivered to the body, which can cause cellular dysfunction, can cause organ failure, and all of this can eventually lead to death. As a matter of fact, in most situations in which there's severe trauma and things like that on the way to death you have to go through shock now it's important in order to understand to understand shock to know how the body works cells need two things to function they need oxygen and they need glucose and this allows the cells to generate energy and do their specific jobs glucose is generated in the body from the foods we eat and it travels in the bloodstream and uses insulin which allows it to enter the cells to provide energy so that's glucose. Now, oxygen in the air enters the body through the lungs. Oxygen molecules cross from the air sacs in the lungs, that's called the alveoli, into the smallest blood vessels, which are called the capillaries. They're picked up by the red blood cells in these 
capillaries. The red blood cells are pushed through the body by the actions of the pumping heart. They deliver the oxygen to cells all over the place, all over, all over the organs and tissues of the body. Now, what if things go wrong? If cells are deprived of oxygen, instead of using aerobic, in other words, oxygen metabolism to function, the cells use an anaerobic or without oxygen pathway to try to produce energy. Unfortunately, a byproduct of this, which is sort of toxic, is lactic acid. And this acid changes the, well, the acid-based balance in the blood, making it more acidic, causing a situation in which the cells begin to leak these toxins into the bloodstream, causing blood vessel walls to become damaged. And so this anaerobic or without oxygen process ultimately leads to the death of the cell. We, we are a, an organism that requires oxygen to live. If enough cells die, organs will fail and the body starts to fail and eventually death occurs. Now the oxygen delivery systems of the body cells can fail in a number of different ways. Number one, the amount of oxygen in the air that is inhaled can be decreased. So you're in a situation where you're uh, in a, uh, dealing with smoke inhalation or a gas attack or something like that. That's one way. Uh, breathing less oxygen because you're at a very high altitude or let's say there's carbon monoxide in the air, that also will be uh, the kind of issue that prevents oxygen from being delivered to the cells. Also, a malfunction or an injury to the lung may cause it to be difficult to transfer oxygen to the bloodstream. So for an example, this would be pneumonia, which is an infection of the lung in which the alveoli, the little air sacs I was talking about, fill up with, uh, with fluid, therefore not allowing oxygen to get into these sacs enough to get into the bloodstream and provide oxygen. Of course, congestive heart failure uh, uh, can cause it. Uh, in congestive heart failure, the lung fills with fluid. That's called pulmonary edema. And that also causes the inability of oxygen to pass through this fluid to get into the bloodstream. Uh, trauma, a collapse of a lung, let's say with a rib fracture or a gunshot wound, that would also do it if the, if the lungs collapse. Uh, or a blood clot, if a blood clot occurs in the lung that's called the pulmonary embolism, that interrupts the circulation in the lungs as well and also makes it difficult for oxygen to get into the bloodstream. Now the heart also is an issue. The heart may not be able to adequately pump the blood to the tissues of the body. And some of these, there are different ways that this can be a problem. A heart attack, of course, in which a muscle tissue is lost and the heart just can't beat as strong as it used to and pump blood throughout the body as it needs to to deliver oxygen to the tissues. Uh, there could be a rhythm disturbance of the heart and an arrhythmia can occur when uh, the heart doesn't beat in a coordinated way. Things like heart, heart block or things like uh, ventricular tachycardia or there are a number of different types of uh, abnormal heart rhythms that can cause this. Now sometimes there's an inflammation of the sac around the heart that's called the pericardium. You have a lining of the, uh, the heart. The heart is, lives in a sac called the pericardium. And what happens is if there's fluid that accumulates it between this sac and the heart itself, it can cause pressure on the heart. And that could be due to blood because of, of an injury. That could be due to inflammatory fluid because of infections. And so what that does, it doesn't allow the heart to beat as beat normally and therefore cannot deliver uh, blood in, in an appropriate fashion. 
There, there might not be, by the way, enough red blood cells in the blood itself. If you have a bad anemia, for example, then not enough oxygen gets delivered to the tissues with each heartbeat, and uh, this can cause a major, major issue and have you go into shock. Now, the reasons why this could happen, uh, not having enough red blood cells, are either because of bleeding, uh, could be because the of a chronic illness in which the bone marrow just cannot make red blood cells well, or there may be a condition which causes the red blood cells in the body to be damaged or destroyed early or have a shortened lifespan, things like uh, sickle cell disease, that, that would actually do it. So that's something like something that would work. Now, there, there's not just red blood cells in your blood. Your blood is actually mostly fluid, plas called plasma or serum, which is about 90% water, and it has a lot of important proteins and chemicals. And if you become very, very dehydrated and don't have enough of this fluid in which the red blood cells and the other uh, solid parts of the blood uh, swim in, well, that can cause shock as well. And the other thing is that the blood vessels, if they're not able to provide enough pressure, blood pressure, within their walls to allow blood to be pumped to the rest of the body, that could be a big problem. Normally, you have to think about it, blood vessels, walls have this tension that allows blood to be pumped against gravity. Otherwise, blood would never be able to go above the level of the heart, right? And you have to have blood in your brain and you walk standing upright. So therefore, you need to have the ability for the blood to go against gravity and get up there into your brain. So the ability to have pressure in these blood vessels, that's under the control of your central nervous system. And if this system fails, the blood vessel walls sort of dilate, they, they open up, uh, and therefore the blood pools in the parts of the body closest to the ground, simply due to gravity, right? And they have a difficult time returning to the heart to be pumped around the body and certainly to the brain. Now there are four stages of shock, and the initial stage of shock is stage one, uh, is reversible, but the problem is that many times there aren't signs to indicate stock, shock at this early stage. Cells begin to change due to t issues with perfusion, there's that word perfusion, and oxygenation, and so without an adequate oxygen supply, the cells don't function as well and they start to collapse. Then you go into stage two, that's the called the compensatory stage of shock. And during this stage, the body tries to reverse the results of the initial stages, and it reacts in a number of ways to correct the imbalances. Uh, hyperventilation, that would be one way. If you increase your rate of breathing, well, you're taking in more oxygen, right? You get more oxygen flowing to the cells, and that might neutralize the acidic conditions that are occurring as a result of the initial stage of shock. Other thing, ways that uh, you can change this and reverse shock is by biochemical responses, hormonal responses, triggered by, uh, let's say, a low blood pressure. If there's a reduced volume of blood flow, there are hormones that actually increase the heart rate and attempt to increase the blood pressure. So it does, we ha our body is a miracle in many ways. It really does try to fix itself, if at all possible, but sometimes, it move, the shock moves on to a stage three, which would be a progressive stage of shock. If it progresses to the third stage, damage can become more severe and starts to become irreversible. Cell function continues to deteriorate, anaerobic metabolism, the 
non-oxygen metabolism starts increasing the amount of acid in your system and the compensatory mechanisms can't maintain the balance required to protect the organs. Without advanced care, if you're in this stage, you're probably in big trouble. And then in stage four, it's called the refractory stage of shock. Well, if you cannot fix the cause of the shock, the organs will completely fail and lead to death. So this is, these are the four stages of shock and you want to deal with these things early and you want to help people out, unfortunately, without advanced care, some of these shock victims will not be able to be helped. There are a lot of different types of shock that our bodies go through. There, there's cardiogenic shock associated with heart problems. We talked a little bit about that. Hypovolemic shock caused by inadequate fluid volume, let's say caused by severe dehydration due to bad, let's say a bad cholera uh, infection. Uh, and, uh, hemorrhagic shock is sort of a subset of hypovolemic shock, but that's because of loss of blood. Anaphylactic shock, I'm sure you've heard of that, caused by a severe allergic reaction. That's one, uh, uh, definitely a major issue. Uh, hypovolemic, no, hypoglycemic, excuse me, or hyperglycemic. In other words, low sugar or high sugar. If you have very low sugar or you have very high sugar, it can cause its own type of shock. And then there's neurogenic shock, which occurs as a result of a major injury to the nervous system, let's say a spinal injury. So these are definitely issues that can cause shock and they have their own problem. The symptoms of these, because there's so many different types, can be myriad. I mean, there are a bunch of them. Uh, of course, people that are going to shock, you're gonna see them be agitated and anxious. They, their lips and fingernails may turn blue. Their capillary refill time will be uh, prolonged that we talked about that earlier, capillary refill time. Uh, chest pain, because the heart may not be getting enough oxygen. Uh, these people have mental status. Not only, not only are they agitated, but they could become confused. They could be lightheaded. They could be faint, or they could faint com completely away and become unconscious. Uh, they hyperventilate. Uh, they, may, they oftentimes are profusely sweating, have very cold, clammy skin. Uh, they have... Uh, a very high, rapid pulse, you'll see that. Uh, if you measured the urine output, the urine output would either may be decreased or may have stopped altogether. Uh, their blood pressure, if you check that, that would be very low and their skin would be very pale in general. And so these are just some of the things that you would see with people that are in shock that would give you an idea that they're hap that's happening. So let's go over some of these different types of shock very quickly. Cardiogenic shock occurs when heart muscle damage uh, occurs. Uh, some kind of heart damage occurs most of the time. This happens as a result of a heart attack. It's not enough, not enough living muscle anymore to pump the blood. You've got four chambers in the heart, the left atrium, right atrium, left and right ventricle, and each one needs living muscle, right, to perform its function as a pump. And when heart tissue dies, that circulation of blood from this now faulty pump, well, that goes down the hill, it becomes compromised, and obviously the delivery of oxygen to the body equally becomes compromised. So I think I mentioned that irregular heart rhythms could cause problems as well, and when blood fluid builds up inside the heart lining, that also causes pressure that prevents the ventricles from, and, and the atriums 
from expanding fully, the different chambers expanding fully, and therefore they're not pumping blood out. And the only way to get rid of that, by the way, is by draining it, but you do that with a large bore needle, usually under some kind of diagnostic imaging like x-ray or uh, MRI or sonogram. And that, this procedure would be so tricky under primitive conditions, you can, I think it would rarely be carried out successfully. So cardiogenic shock, big trouble. Now, one of the things that is most likely, cardiogenic shock is not something hopefully that you'll see a lot of, but you may see a lot of hypovolemic shock. There needs to be enough red blood cells and water in the blood for the heart to push the fluids around the body. Then when the body becomes dehydrated, there may be plenty of red blood cells, but the total volume of fluid is decreased, and therefore the blood pressure decreases as well. And that affects the cardiac output. Cardiac output is the amount of blood the heart can pump out in one minute. It's calculated uh, as a stroke volume multiplied by the heart rate. So the stroke volume is how much blood each heartbeat pushes out and how the heart rate is, how fast the heart beats each minute, so that gives you the cardiac output. If there's less blood in the system to be pumped, well, the heart has to speed up to try to keep the output steady. And you have to realize that the water that makes up 90% of blood, I think that I mentioned before, if the body becomes dehydrated because of water is lost, fluid intake is inadequate, the body tries to maintain the cardiac output by making the heart beat faster. As fluid losses mount, however, that, these compensation mechanisms, they fail and it causes shock. And that's hypovolemic shock, hypo, low, volemic volume, low volume shock due to water loss is the endpoint of many illnesses. It's the way people exit this world in many cases. And the, the main element is just lack of fluid in the body. And so diarrheal disease, cholera, gastroenteritis, those kind of things can cause severe water loss from not only diarrhea, but vomiting, major cause of death, especially in third world countries. And we can assume it would be a major cause of death in places that were taken off the grid by surprise due to some kind of disaster. Uh, people also in epidemics, that would be a big thing. People with infections lose a significant amount of water from fevers, from sweating, things like that. People with diabetes who have diabetic ketoacidosis also lose significant water and very high because of very high sugars, uh, and that causes excess water to be uh, uh, secreted or excreted in the urine. So in hypovolemic shock, the patient eventually just cannot replace the amount of fluid that's being lost simply by drinking water, and the body just can't maintain its blood pressure and its cardiac output. So when these things start to happen, cells start to malfunction, waste products build up, and there's just a downward spiral of cell death that occurs killing you. Now, a subset of the hypovolemic shock is hemorrhagic shock, and that occurs when there's significant bleeding that causes there to be not enough fluid in the blood vessels. And of course, trauma is the most common example of, of bleeding and hemorrhage, obviously the 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 sens most sensational thing, so you hear it talked about a lot in medical circles or survival medical circles, uh, but bleeding can occur also from medical conditions too. If you're bleeding from an ulcer, for example, that would do it. If you had a, a cancer of, in the colon, that would do it. Uh, if you ruptured a diverticulum or ruptured an appendix, you could bleed from that. 
uh, in women, for example, uh, excessive bleeding can occur from the uterus, for example, during childbirth. So that can happen. People with uh, a blood clotting factor problem, if they have hemophilia or any, anything that uh, causes a deficiency in the blood clotting factors in your body, that can cause you to go into hemorrhagic shock. Uh, people that take too much blood thinner medication, they can bleed excessively as well. So lots of, lots of crazy things can cause hemorrhagic shock. And blood loss has two effects on the body. Not only the loss of volume within blood vessels to be pumped, which is hypovolemic shock, but secondarily, what happens is there's a reduced oxygen carrying capacity because of the loss of red blood cells. Remember, the red blood cells are what carry oxygen to the tissues. Now, you could lose probably about 20% of your blood volume, maybe twice the amount that a person donates at a blood drive without becoming symptomatic with weakness, lightheaded, lightheadedness, or low blood pressure. Now, the treatment of hemorrhagic shock, it depends on the cause. Finding and controlling the source of bleeding, that's paramount importance. Stop the bleeding. Intravenous fluids can help with resuscitation to increase the blood volume. Uh, blood transfusion sometimes can help, although it's very difficult to deal with in terms of a off-grid situation. If you're able to replenish the fluids, if it's a hypovolemic shock, it's easier to replace fluids uh, with normal saline than replacing blood and red blood cells. Obviously, you need red blood cells to replace blood, red blood cells that are lost. Over time, if you could stabilize the bleeding or stop the bleeding completely, the bone marrow may actually be able to replenish red blood cells that were lost. It's summertime and mosquito season is here. And you know what? You can actually control the amount of mosquitoes that are around your property by putting the right plants in your garden. And here's Amy to tell us a little bit about that. Hey, I am back. <laughs> and not interrupting Dr. Bones. I hope you guys noticed that. I wanted you to have a nice peaceful talk with him. So let's talk about summer. Boy, summer is getting here really, really quickly. And guess what we're going to be dealing with, folks? <gasps> Mosquitoes. Yuck. Bzzz. I killed one today, actually, when we were in Concord. They are back. And unfortunately, they are common vectors for diseases that we have been hearing about lately and for a while. Zika virus. Malaria is coming back. We've got some West Nile problems. So we really need to keep our mosquitoes down. The populations away from your house as much as possible so you folks don't get sick and don't have any serious consequences from any of these illnesses too. Of course, now you can wear insect repellents containing DEET or other chemicals as an option, but if you are, are hanging out around your house, maybe you don't have um, screens and you like a beautiful breeze to come through your house, or you're just on a patio without a screen. A lot of folks don't have screens. It's a really common thing in South Florida, but people up north just sort of open their doors. So what can you do about this? And 
not having to spray yourself with DEET or other chemicals. You can consider plants. And one of the most well-known anti-mosquito plant, well-known but maybe not the best one, is Centronella, which if you go into candle stores or um, a Home Depot, you will find a lot of sprays, you'll find a lot of candles that are infused with the oil, which you can light and you can kind of put all around your patio and when you're sitting outside to help. So you probably have smelled Centronella before and um, it, it smells pretty nice, it's not bad. There are essential oils and extracts from Centronella that are so effective at keeping mosquitoes away that they're now in a lot of commercial repellents the ones that are using natural ingredients. So look for those uh, that might be helpful if you want to actually put it on yourself, but you can grow citronella also. We have citronella in our patio, and my goodness, it grows like a weed, at least in our grow zone. So you have to think about what's your grow zone, what is going to grow where you are. And here's some other things you might consider. Lemon balm, um, it does contain a compound, Citronellol, which has a very similar effect to citronella. Just know that it's an invasive species in some areas, so be careful where you're growing it or it could take over your yard. You may consider putting it in pots so you can tame it a little bit, but boy, will it jump if you have your pots too close together and you have something else in the other pot, it'll reach over. So just beware. Uh, it's kind of like uh, raspberries or blackberries. Once you get them going, man, that's it. It's off to the races. Or like sweet potatoes will do the same thing. Many of the smells we find pleasant are actually unpleasant to mosquitoes. For example, carbon dioxide has a pleasant aroma to mosquitoes, but not to humans. Lavender's calming flowery scent has the opposite effect. And Lavadin strain of lavender has a good amount of camphor, which will help repel mosquitoes. And we, again, love the smell of lavender. Another plant you might want to consider, which we have also growing, and this time instead of on the patio, we have it in our front yard, planted in the ground, is called lemongrass. It grows really quickly, and uh, it, it looks like a ball of grass. It's actually really beautiful, and it can grow to like a three to six foot wide area. So it's really pretty. It smells really great, and actually lemongrass, um, I would say, probably has one of the best reputations for getting rid of mosquitoes. Um, let's see what else. Uh, I want to just emphasize checking your grow zone and to try to stick with plants that will likely do well in your area. Now, I admit to trying many plants that are not well suited to my number 10 grow zone, but occasionally I get lucky. And one thing we learned in the Master Gardener program was that right plant, right place. So sometimes you can grow out of your grow zone, but most of the times it's much better if you kind of just plant the things that you're sure are going to grow so you're not wasting your time and your effort and your money. Let's see what else. Uh, cats love catnip, but mosquitoes not so much. They are related to mint and they contain a, a chemical that attracts uh, cats but is also an insect repellent. 
And according to some studies, this is much more effective to repel mosquitoes than some commercial sprays using DEET. Very good. So you can consider uh, lemongrass and catnip as two of your top mosquito repelling plants. Uh, catnip plants grow tall, so if you're planting them directly in your garden, make sure you put them in an area where they're going to grow that won't block your view. Another thing you can think about, marigolds. But don't get those marigolds that you see, again, like at Home Depot, because most likely they're not the ones that have the really strong insect repelling properties. Basil is one of the few plants that offer a strong bug repelling scent without having to crush the leaves. A 2011 review published in the Malaria Journal concluded that essential oils found in basil provided nearly 100% level of protection from mosquitoes. You can also consider planting lemon eucalyptus, but you're going to want to put that in a pot because if you put it in the ground and it actually is very happy, that thing can grow to be 30 to 60 feet tall. So unless you want a big forest around your house, you're probably going to want to pot the lemon eucalyptus. Others that repel mosquitoes include garlic, geranium, wormwood, peppermint, clove, rosemary, lots of really great smelling and very useful plants. Many of these plants also have medicinal benefits, of course, we've talked about those before, especially in off-grid settings. And you will find information on those plants and others in, of course, the Survival Medicine Handbook, our third edition. Your mosquito repelling plants are only effective if strategically situated. Concentrate several repellent plants in one small area or plant them in pots, which we just talked about, so you can move them. Move them to where you are, remove them to put them where you're going to be hanging out, maybe near entry points of your home, near doors and windows. It's important to realize that the best way to combat mosquitoes is to get rid of as many breeding grounds as possible. There are things called mosquito dunks. Mosquito dunks uh, have something called BTI. It's a larvicide which kills mosquito larvae but is harmless to birds, fish, wildlife, and pets. Thank you guys for listening. This is Survival Medicine Hour and we'll be back next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. 